This is Sustainable-ish with me, Jen Gale, and it is great to have you here. Listen in each week and I hope I can brighten up your day and leave you feeling inspired and excited about the magnificent human being that you are and the power that you have to create a better world. You won't find any expectations of eco-warrior perfection here. There's no obligatory tree hugging. You won't be judged if you drive a car, wear leather shoes, or eat the odd pack of Haribo every now and then. I'll be sharing my own gems of wisdom for sustainable-ish living, and I also relentlessly scour the internet for people doing amazing things to tackle the big environmental issues that we're facing, and I hound them until they agree to come on and inspire us all with their fabulousness and the positive change that they're making. So sit back, listen in, and get ready to change the world one baby step at a time. Hello, hello, and welcome to the Sustainable-ish podcast. Today we're talking all things shoes with Emma Foster-Gearing, who is the head of sustainability, no less, at Vivo Barefoot. Vivo Barefoot, if you haven't heard of them, is a barefoot shoe brand. Emma will explain all. But as well as creating shoes that help our feet, they want to create shoes that help or at least don't hinder the planet too. Because did you know that more than 25 billion shoes are produced each year and 90% of those will end up in landfill, often within just 12 months? Now, Vivo Barefoot have launched an exciting new initiative to help change this called Revivo, which I like, which reconditions worn or returned Vivo Barefoot shoes to keep them in use and out of landfill. Most of us, I think, now are more and more aware of the impact of fast fashion, but it feels like sustainable shoes is something that maybe many of us haven't really thought about. And I know that I was blown away by some of the facts and stats that Emma shares, and it really is food for thought. Enjoy. Hello, Emma. Welcome to Sustainable-ish. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm quite nervous, actually, because you just said, A, you're, you've been doing your own podcast for Vivo Barefoot, and B, like you're a, a proper kind of sustainability, grown-up, professional person, whereas I feel very much like I'm just winging it. So. <laughs> oh, I love this. I'm literally sitting next to a wardrobe full of books on feminism about imposter syndrome, and I feel ah. like this started right there. <laughs> <laughs> this, this whole podcast could go in a completely different direction very quickly. I know. <laughs> Before we get derailed, can you um, introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about what you do and I guess a little sneak peek of what we're going to talk about today? Yeah, sure. Absolutely. Yeah. So uh, my name's Emma and I have been working in what I guess we call sustainability now for probably the better part of 20 years now. Um, You don't look old enough. (laughs) What's the secret? (laughs) um resilience (laughs) no so I I you know I mean I was a kind of typical surfer kid growing up on the beach in Australia um and and picking up rubbish and kind of watching how big oil companies were destroying the planet um and, and kind of just you know straight away in school started to ask questions around why we do that and and how to change it basically and I think when you work in this area you kind of either go left or right in terms of going into the kind of more advocacy side of, of saving the planet, or you go into, right, I acknowledge the system is what it is and I'm going to get involved in it. I'm going to mm-hmm. work with the system. Yeah. So my dad's an engineer and he encouraged me to do that and to kind of understand why business makes decisions they do and mm-hmm. how politics works and the kind of whole ordeal. So, um, Wow, your dad sounds pretty awesome. Yeah, no, he's, it, it um, I think he's a bit jealous of my job now, actually. <laughs> I think if he could have chosen when he was younger, he probably would have. But, um, oh, amazing. But yeah, so I, I guess like he, he kind of helped me um, understand that this was a process of continually asking why things were being done the way they were. And so I, my background's in engineering. Uh, I worked in construction for a while. I, I worked in big mining projects in Australia for quite some time. Wow. You know, BHP, Rio Tinto, uh, Chevron, the kind of whole ordeal. And realised that, 
the way the world worked was around this kind of central thesis of power at the top of these multi-globalized uh, international organizations that rule the majority of the world's wealth as it was. I'm starting to sound like a little bit of a, an outraged advocate. <laughs> and I'm not going in that direction. I acknowledge the system is what it is. But um, yeah, and then kind of started to do a PhD in this topic around... Uh, values-based management, I won't bore you with that, got picked up to work in luxury fashion with uh, Burberry, basically. God, you've, you've done all that, ticked all the boxes. <laughs> yeah, I get, I'm getting, I'm a village bicycle of the, uh, of the, of the sustainability industry, basically. <laughs> you, in terms of, do you know, like mining and then, uh, you know, fashion and things, I, I would never have expected that that was kind of your background. <laughs> yeah, I just think it's one of those things where you, you, I keep chasing the power moment, right? I keep trying to find that key of how you unlock, you know, how we make decisions and, and how to kind of do it better. Mm. Not just in the sense of kind of, let's still do business, but let's do a little bit less harm, but actually in the sense of how do you actually use business and politics and um, our economy and our capitalist system as a, as a vehicle for mm. actually fixing these things, actually making them better than they were before so yeah yeah I, I don't know so um I think everyone's doing this mission in their own ways right um, mm, yeah and so for me fashion was really exciting because you had this wonderful tripod of of business uh politics and economics where the fashion industry's branding now influences millions if not billions of lives around the world you mm -hmm. get uh, someone like a Burberry to post something on their Instagram and you know just like that you're influencing millions and billions of lives like what politician can say they can do yeah that kind of level of power so um, at the same time they also have this wonderful kind of dirty underbelly which I'm sure you're incredibly familiar <laughs> with but that I kind of call at the bottom of the iceberg in terms of their the way they run their businesses and the way that they decentralize their impacts into the supply chain yeah so I thought, right, this is, this, is, this is it. Like, this is where we make that change. And so I, I worked for Burberry for a bit. And then I um, moved over to a brand called Primark, which is a um, yeah. fast fashion giant in the UK. Um, and I, I worked for their owner company um, and basically saw, you know, opportunities coming out our ears for things to be done better, but couldn't, I, I mean, in a nutshell, couldn't influence them. So mm -hmm gave up all but kind of went back to Australia and went to build a tiny house and live <laughs> off the grid, which I'm sure we're all familiar with that feeling. Oh. <laughs> um, and then I met Galahad, the CEO of Vivo Barefoot. And he just, to me, was the anti-destructive business. And I think we can probably talk about that a bit more, but, but basically, you know, everything about what he does, what he lives and breathes, and, and his cousin Asher, the co-founder of Vivo Barefoot, is let's set an example for how we can actually make business this like truly restorative function for our own health and for the environment. Wow. So for people who haven't come across Vivo Barefoot as a brand before, I don't know why I assumed they were American, but you said, no, they're kind of a very British brand. So can you just tell us a bit more about the company? Yeah. Um, so basically Vivo Barefoot is... Well, it's a barefoot footwear brand um, that is constantly evolving now. So what does um, barefoot footwear, like what's, that might be quite new to some people. Yeah. You know what? I'm going to qualify this with, I'm absolutely not the expert, but <laughs> I'm going to give it a fair crack. Yeah, um, go for it. So the, the kind of general concept is that our bodies evolved in this wonderful kind of biological way to feel the ground underneath us. And we have, all of these sensors in our feet and, and all the circulation of our blood and everything in our feet that fills the ground, that fills the temperature, that understands there's rock there or the, the texture of it or, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but at the same time, it's one of our absolute fundamental, you know, physical needs, think Maslow's hierarchy of needs, for us to protect that because it's so sensitive to the temperature, to these things that we obviously um, feel, touch and feel on a day-to-day -day basis. So what we've done over years and years and years through footwear is actually make this essential need a fashion item. And so we've boxed our feet in, we've padded up the shoe, we've put all bells and whistles all over it, we've 
put toxic kind of plastic materials all over it and we keep trying to brand it and design it different 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 and mm-hmm. and the more we do that the more we kind of it's a detriment to our own health um, mm-hmm. because we're stopping our feet and our bodies from working the way they were designed to work so we've launched a thing called shoe spiracy actually if you get the chance to jump on youtube which kind of describes all the science that's come out of harvard and and leeds and uh, university that, that really goes into detail around what the, the impacts are of us doing that, where we close our toes in and we, we make them, you know, absolutely need these central supports, whereas actually we want wide, thin, flexible feet that can work with us and, and let us connect with nature the way they were designed to be. And, and so basically barefoot footwear has a kind of niche cult following at the moment of people who understand this and actually then get involved in it and they feel completely different but it's starting to get bigger and bigger and I think that people are starting to look for solutions especially at the time of COVID for them to just feel better and and Mm. also at the same time uh, because it's a minimal shoe you know just by definition it has a lower impact on the environment Um, but then because of the fact that that Vivo Barefoot in itself and and the founders of the company have such a strong environmental ethic uh, you know we go at the absolute nth degree in terms of the impact that it has on the environment in terms of the materials and the way it's made etc etc so uh, i mean me personally I, I have rheumatoid arthritis and since i've been wearing barefoot footwear essentially I, i've started to improve my circulation um, i get less headaches um, my posture's completely changed you know i have no stats to back that up this is all anecdotal evidence mm. but you've got stories come out your ears of people with a similar experience basically Wow, that's really fascinating. And you were saying there about the sort of environmental impact. And I think, like you mentioned, you worked for Primark and and more and more of us are becoming aware, hopefully, of the impact that fashion and especially uh, sort of fast fashion brands like Primark can have on the planet and on the people working within their supply chains. But I think even those of us who are uh, are sort of aware of, of that and doing what we can to sort of avoid that probably haven't joined the dots up with regards to shoes or if we have it feels incredibly difficult to find shoes that fit with our values can you just speak a little bit about the impact I guess that that regular shoe production can have on the planet yeah in all honesty when I first came into Vivo Barefoot I was like blown away by it I, I knew it was bad but I never knew it was that bad. And, and I'm just going to qualify that with not specific to Vivo Barefoot. That's mm-hmm. The footwear industry in itself is just unbelievable. As you say yourself, unexplored frontier of, you know, how we can really do this the wrong way, mm. um, how we can live the wrong way. And there's a wonderful book by a woman called Tansy Hoskins called Footwork. Oh, okay. And it, it's all about what shoes are doing to the world. And it kind of goes, it goes into the detail of the stunning story of, of even, like, again, sorry to come back to feminism again, but the way that, the, that females were put in high heels um, yeah. and the kind of social pressure around footwear that then kind of, you know, translates to kids these days seeing footwear as a status item that can only yeah. last a very limited period of time because therefore the value goes once the next one drops or... Mm-hmm once there's a Kanye West part two or whatever. And then it goes back and kind of shows that underbelly that I was talking about before in terms of what actually goes into making that system happen. And footwear is just one of those shocking things where, you know, if you think about a T-shirt, it already has, let's say on average, five or six factories in that supply chain. Um, And that's without counting what we call middlemen, which are basically agents which sit between the brand and the factories and then the factories and the factories and et cetera, et cetera. Mm. So footwear can have up to 50 or 60 different components in the actual shoe. So if you think about it, you've got like the laces, but then the laces have a little kind of nodule on the end. You've got the eyelets, you've got the sole, you've got maybe two or three parts of the sole, you've got foam, you've got backings, you've got, you know, there's just so much shoe. So when you, when you then extrapolate that out into the supply chains that basically sit behind them in order to do that, it is just phenomenal. And honestly, the footwear industry is just years behind the general fashion industry in terms of actually the transparency of that supply chain first and foremost, but yeah. how you actually address those issues. 
I'm not doing a lot of credit to people who have done a lot of work. So companies like Adidas, you know, they have done a lot of work in the footwear industry. But coming back to the early point I was saying, I definitely think that it's been how can you keep making shoes but just kind of do it in the least possible worst way yeah. where actually no one's kind of, I don't think there's really great examples yet of footwear brands that have gone actually like if we're going to make these shoes, then every single part of how we make it has to be improving the world, not mm-hmm. just continuing to grow our impact and, and maybe slightly we'll swap this material out for yeah. or whatever. But there's, you know, so it's a very, very complicated industry. And I don't think it's going anywhere quickly. I mean, you've probably seen some of the statistics around it, but it is just such a phenomenally fast-growing commercial area of business. Wow. Which doesn't translate, right, back to how many people actually need shoes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, to, and, and I guess when you think, you know, there are kids who haven't got shoes to wear to school. So there's, there's kind of that inequality as well, isn't there? And then... When you were talking there about the supply chains and, and you, we sort of touched on feminism a couple of times, like within the garment industry that I think the stats are that, you know, 80% of garment workers are women. So it, it almost becomes quite a kind of a feminist issue. I interviewed somebody for the podcast who was sort of, you know, when, when she sort of discovered fast fashion almost, she kind of, her, her epiphany was like, I can't call myself a feminist and still buy fast fashion because I'm sort of supporting the oppression and the sort of exploitation of this huge group of women and because of the way shoes are made it kind of it this is probably a really stupid thing to say it feels like a bit more of a manly thing do you have the same proportion of women working in shoe manufacture that might be a really unfair question to ask you might not have those stats to hand but do you know is it is it a um, female dominated um, supply chain or the other way around I love that you've asked this question (laughs) (laughs) the truth is that there's a lot of what, you know, kind of old school shoe cobblers. Mm. Say from a technical footwear perspective, in my experience, it's been much more male dominated. I wouldn't say necessarily in a particularly negative way. I think that there is a kind of beautiful legacy of, of footwear technical development through history that is actually a really wonderful story if you ever latch onto it. Um, But in terms of the supply chain, uh, I mean, in my experience in the footwear industry so far, which has been fairly limited, I've definitely still seen a predominantly kind of female worker situation. Mm -hmm. I think in many situations, it's because of the just the, the, the amount of money that this industry in general, not footwear, but just in general, it pays. Mm -hmm. Um, So you tend to see across both industries, apparel and footwear, males tend to be in in places like india and bangladesh etc more in management roles yeah. in factories as opposed to on the shop floor as it was mm-hmm. we at vivo barefoot make our footwear in three key locations so we make it in portugal we make it in ethiopia and we make it in vietnam in ethiopia it's it's a kind of wonderful social run business which is i would say probably gender wise a fairly decent split in portugal again probably a fairly decent split uh, in Vietnam, I'd say that's probably by hands down the biggest issues. And the majority of the world's footwear industry is made in Vietnam, Cambodia, mm-hmm. Myanmar, kind of that Southeast Asia region. Um, and that's where the kind of real issues tend to to happen. It's, it's really interesting because I do think that some of these things do come back to some of the more traditional elements of feminism and, and how that kind of translates into the, this industry, definitely. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you mentioned you've got that factory in, in Vietnam and that's where the, the vast majority of shoes are made. One of the issues, I un- as I understand it, with sort of fast fashion is that for, for the big brands is that the supply chains are just so vast and so, you know, there's so much sort of um, subcontracting of, con- you know, that, that it they just sort of, lo- although they can say, oh, well, we've paid this factory to make our clothes, that factory might have then paid 10 other factories who've then paid like 100 women in their houses or whatever. So it's really hard to keep a track of. How, how do you guys address that within your supply chains? Yeah, actually, this is what I was going to say on the last question, actually, because you mentioned your friend says she can't count herself a feminist because she, she still purchases into the fast fashion industry. And actually, this is something that I feel really strongly about that... Um, you know, I just, I think that the time for us to kind of expect and wait for companies to, to fix all these issues, mm. you're absolutely right. 
you know, the complexity of these supply chains is just phenomenal. And it is, I mean, quite frankly, I don't think it's getting any better. New brands popping up every day. They mm. get a kind of five-year grace period not to do anything about it until they're forced <laughs> to. But I just think that, you know, in my opinion, we need more radical people that aren't so concerned with seeing perfection in their own lives in order to ask for change. Yeah. Um, yes, and- definitely. Yes. <laughs> And what I mean by that is essentially, I think you understand what I know, what I mean, but basically, you know, my background has been in watching the mining industry, the construction industry, the fashion industry, the academic industry, et cetera, et cetera, how they work as a kind of system of the global economy of our global political system, kind of, et cetera, et cetera. And I, I do think that individual consumer habits play an important role in that, but I don't think everyone should have to be the same. And I don't think everyone should be comfortable with taking the recycling out or taking a train instead of a plane and, and therefore together eventually will kind of change the world. I think that, I think that most people working in sustainability are hypocrites. Yeah. I mean, I'm in trouble for saying that, but the system doesn't help us be anything other than that right no. now. And so I think for me and a lot of the people in my network, we're kind of out there right now saying, actually what we need to be doing is shouting really loudly and being more radical about big picture change. Uh Um, And and that comes back to your point around this industry, the footwear industry and the supply chains, because when you come into this world and you say, Hey, I, I care so much about doing these things differently. You're immediately met with a barrage of excuses why not to do it. Right. Even in the most progressive organizations, you are still not invited to, a meeting, your emails are still ignored, you're still the lowest priority person in, in that space, no matter what, because the wow. industry is just so far behind. So I think like, I do think that the only way for us to actually fix these really intrinsic endemic issues in this industry is for a people to get really angry about them loudly at a big scale. Yeah. Uh, and B for us to actually kind of step up and as a kind of loud collective demand the system to change um i mean you're probably aware of it but the lack of regulation in this industry is just nothing short of criminal and then and then we wonder how we can sell stuff at the low prices we sell them at yeah Uh, i love what you say there about like we don't need to wait to be perfect to kind of call on other people to make changes and to call on other industries to make changes and i think one of the things I talk about a lot is this idea or this version of activism that it doesn't mean that you have to go and, and, you know, join hopefully when the school strikes are able to start up again and all that sort of thing. You, you know, if that's not your bag, that's fine, but you can still message a brand on social media. You can still write them an email. You can still, like if you've listened to this podcast and you've never thought about shoes as being an issue before, you can share this podcast with your friends and go, wow, this kind of blew my mind. I had no idea about this. I feel quite angry about this and this is what I'm going to do. And, you know, we don't have to be, I don't know, when we, when we talk about activism, we, we conjure up certain images and things. It doesn't have to be like that, but we can still affect change or we can still have an impact in a kind of maybe like you said you said we need to be loud and we need to but in in that kind of quietly loud way does that make sense it makes a lot of sense and it's actually such a nice thing to hear you say because one of the things ironically that, that doesn't help us is the association of sustainability with like some kind of tree hugging hippie mm, yeah 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 warfare thing because you know within the first few weeks of me coming in the door at vivo i think the top three things on my list were you know, not me personally, but other people asking for were, can you do a carbon offsetting scheme? Right. Can you help us let everyone know how our stuff is vegan? Also, the third one was basically, how can you put more information on our website? And so let's just unpack those three things. So (laughs) number one, carbon offsetting. So um, the whole concept of carbon offsettings is total scam from start to finish. Like, first of all, even the word carbon is 100% misleading because it's, it's GHG emissions um, and carbon. So just, um, global greenhouse gas for anyone who's not sure on GHG, oh, yeah. Yeah, so greenhouse gas emissions, um, which include carbon dioxide, but also include lots of other potentially more dangerous things like methane and nitrogen. Mm-hmm. And, and B, the whole way that people are going out right now and saying that they're kind of carbon neutral 
is by spending very nominal amounts of money with, you know, the space of sales cowboys uh, just offering what they call carbon credits to kind of do away with the guilt without actually causing any system to change. So that, I mean, I'm not going to go into more detail there. So that's the first one. So that was maddening. How could we possibly be functioning the way we're functioning and care so much about spending money on carbon offsets? The second one was, well, have we done anything really different to that shoe in order to say it's vegan? Uh, did we just switch to a syn- synthetic toxic material? Yeah. Or did we actually go out there and find a really truly natural, 100% natural material because... In that particular community, things like pineapple leather, which is constantly touted as a vegan alternative, is still like 10% pineapple leaves and 90% polyester, toxic, synthetic. And actually, it's way worse than that's just the pure play toxic synthetic because the worst thing you can do, and and in the context of talking about Revivo, is when you put two materials together, a natural and a synthetic, they're really hard to recycle because there's no way to pull those apart in life. So actually the vegan alternative is in many situations worse. And then you go down this list of vegan certification where, okay, well, you can test the main material, but can you make sure that the glues don't create contain it? Right. And then where do you draw the line? Like, do you go back to the fact that actually in order to get the oil to make that material, the oil industry, which we've seen now in Mauritius, is killing animals left, right, and center yeah. around the world. So is that really vegan? So so that was the second one. And then, <laughs> and, then, and then, yeah, the third one about kind of like, can we put more information on the website? Well, have we really done anything yet? Or are we just kind of plugging up information in order to kind of, you know, brackets on brackets, greenwash out? Yeah. So thinking that. So, you know, we kind of immediately parked all three of those and said, like, let's get some real goals. <laughs> so the first one we did was basically this giant, what we call a consolidation process. So... Um, we worked really closely with the product team to basically reduce completely the complexity of our product. 70% is our key statistic there. So we went from having, you know, 40 or 50 components in a shoe to having 10 or 20 components. Wow. So straight off the bat, you've reduced your amount of impact by 70% because you have 70% less factories and supply chains and materials, et cetera, et cetera. And how you, you say, oh, we just did that. Was that easy? <laughs> <laughs> It's going to be the most under-awarded thing that Vivo will probably ever do because I think the generic person probably will never understand just how hard something like that is. Yeah, and um, won't even notice probably. No, 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 no. But uh, we're lucky that our co-founder, Asher, is a wonderful, inspiring, innovative designer. Um, and our head of product, uh, Katie, basically, you know, we had this huge kind of piece of cultural change where we said, right, we need to do this we were on a beach in Vietnam and we, we were literally walking on this beach and there was just plastic shoes everywhere. And, wow. and it clicked for her. She got it. And she's done this thing over the last 12 months, basically to completely reduce it. And, and, and yeah, so that, that was a really key part of this. And we put up playing lanes. We, we put design rules in place. We, we got the whole kind of designing for circularity thing in place, which basically unlocked us being able to launch this thing called Revivo. I'm kind of stealing your question from you, but... No, no, no. It's, it's really good because it, it, it links in really nicely. So, yeah, go for it. Yeah, so Revivo is essentially uh, what we would probably call an end-of-life solution. So instead of just making shoes and sending them out into the world, we want to provide a service to our community of bring that shoe back when you're done with it or it needs something fixed or whatever, and we will refurbish and rehabilitate that into its next life. And with the goal of having 100% of our, of our products that we make completely being able to, to go through that loop. So that's not, we're not there yet, but uh, we're definitely well on the way to getting there. Uh, so we're in partnership with an organization called the Boot Repair Company, and they have helped us bring to life this basically three graded um, system of taking products back, fixing them, depending on how bad they are, and then being able to resell them a separate e-commerce website uh, for people um, to buy them. And, and there's lots of different reasons why people buy them, maybe because it's a, a, a cheaper price, but actually a lot of people want old stock that we no longer sell that's coming oh, through there okay. now. Or, or just perhaps just kind of aren't really that concerned with getting something brand new and, and are interested in the secondhand market. So we've got a very kind of diverse community of people interacting with it now. Right, I've got so many questions. Okay, <laughs> for those who 
either haven't heard of it before or maybe have heard of it but don't really get it, circular economy. So the concept of circular economy is that we go from a system where we kind of make something and then dispose of it and then it ends up in landfill or Mm -hmm. or something and you've used resources from the world and you haven't given them back um, to, to completely closing that what we call a linear process and making it circular so that everything that we take from the world, we end up giving back to the world in some way, shape or form. And that is both from a financial perspective, so money, it's, it's environmental resources, so um, inputs, cotton, and it's also um, human welfare. So mm. are you creating jobs, not just jobs, but healthy, well-paying uh, jobs in communities that need them? All of those aspects get taken into account in the concept of circular economy. It definitely originates mostly, I, I would say definitely dominantly from a let's stop creating waste but basically for us, it means that we can comfortably keep existing in this world without feeling like we're just adding to mm. this like 25 billion pairs of shoes that go to landfill, yeah. you know, every year. Um, because people Say that are, number again. 25 billion pairs are made every year and most of them end up in landfill, basically, yeah. Wow. And there's also a difference, isn't there, between making something and us using it and and obviously then it goes to landfill or making something us using it and then it being recycled because I think when a lot of us think about recycling in our head our plastic bottle we use it and then it's recycled then it's turned into another plastic bottle and in in you know I don't know what the stats are but I'm imagining you know over 90% of the cases for recycling that isn't the case because stuff gets downcycled so when we think about like recycling shoes you'll you'll know this better than me what happens they get ground up and kind of I don't know then what happens to them so this is a really important point and actually why I brought up the importance of us doing that design process yeah because what you end up getting out in terms of quality and repairability is a hundred percent what you put pen to paper and designed at the very start so so you're designing something so that it's products that are going through vivo aren't perfect and there are still some that are going to be unfortunately downcycled in some way, shape or form. But from 12 months ago, when we launched this new strategy, this regeneration strategy, we've put up absolutely insane playing lanes for our design team. So they are not allowed to let anything hit the design floor unless it has a repairability solution. Wow. Um, so that either means it has to be compostable or it has to be modular and be able to pull apart and, and be able to put back together again. Uh, and then as the very last, last, last situation, can it be chemically recycled where you basically bring the materials in and you use a special um, range of chemicals to dissolve it and then it makes a new material that is still quite high impact. So it's not our preferential, mm. but basically they're not allowed to design anything that isn't doesn't hit those things yeah and um trust me there were some arguments around that i bet and (laughs) it's really interesting that you talk about the fact that actually this this has had to come you've had to kind of unpick and go right back to the beginning because it's not companies saying oh we'll we'll recycle we'll get your stuff back and we'll recycle it it's kind of putting a bit of a sticking plaster on it isn't it it's because it all these things like you say are being downcycled and made into other things. Whereas what we really want with a truly circular economy is that something is designed so that it can be made back into the same thing again or incorporated in some way into it. And so that, and also that you're taking responsibility for the stuff you're putting out there, that you're saying we will have this back and we will do something with it. Can you imagine if Coca-Cola said, we will have your plastic bottles back and we will make them into more plastic bottles? Like that's a game changer, isn't it? When, they, when companies start to think like that. It definitely is a game changer. But the one thing I will say is I don't think it's possible for a company like Coca-Cola to do that unless they end up finding a way to put, you know, sustainability, for lack of a better word, in their DNA. Mm. As you say, I think that things like that can become this wonderful sticking plaster, which also benefits as a Coca-Cola commercial. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like they could make a lot of money now off doing that, right? Without actually really having to change any of their business model. So the fact that what they're producing is in a, a disposable product. So to, uh, to, to fundamentally change, they need to 
move away from single use. So Vivo is really fortunate in that the whole lifeblood of environmental and human health is is embedded in the DNA. Mm. And by the way, I'm not branding them right now. I'm, I'm actually encouraged to be an independent sustainability director to Vivo because we just don't think that in any way sustainability should be competitive. Mm. Um, one of the things I have noticed is that, you know, when you have that culture there um, that's really bred into the way that, that the company kind of came about and operates, a lot of those decisions to do things differently just come about without the tension that you would have if you were a Coca-Cola, for example. Yeah. So, for, for example, when we put these guidelines up around hitting these goals of, of circularity, we had to stop designing things that looked really cool. I mean, <laughs> we, I mean, seriously. And like even, even things like using particular colorways on, on products, we get people say, oh, can you make a bright orange one of this? Well, actually, no, the only chemicals available to get that right now are toxic. And we've put up really clear lanes that say we're not allowed wow. to do things. So we have to, it's actually really good now because it's forced innovation in the right yeah. area. And now we're looking at, you know, new dyeing techniques, new materials, new ways of, of, of processing and making things that perhaps no one else is looking at yet because we have said very clearly we're not interested in going outside of those rules. But, you know, the, the point is I, I just don't think that the true system change that is going to save our planet and actually move us towards this kind of wonderful, ecological, fair, peaceful utopia is going to be big companies doing small things slightly better, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, it kind of, I, I guess we need this, I was going to say new generation, but it's not even, like you guys have been around for a little while, haven't you? Um, but it, it's about rethinking, well, I guess our whole economy is that we, you know, we need to move towards this circular economy quickly. Questions, I guess, about secondhand shoes, like my whole journey, for want of a better phrase, into sustainability began with a year buying nothing new. So, so we, you know, bought everything secondhand for a year. And I'm, you know, really comfortable with buying secondhand clothes, have no issues with it at all. I think secondhand shoes, is it a stretch too far for some people? <laughs> like, it's just the, the, the kind of like, oh, it's someone else's kind of <laughs> cheesy foot been in there. And sometimes especially with sandals and things, you get the kind of, you know, you can see their little footprint on there. You're like, mm, I'm not that comfortable with that. It's not quite underwear, is it? <laughs> yes. I think it's like underwear is the big thing that everyone says no to. And then I think shoes may be next. How are we going to solve that one? I guess it depends on your frame of reference. <laughs> for me personally, and I think probably you had the same experience, I would prefer something secondhand that came and was made before the the generation of toxic plastics that now filter our lives yeah well so i i actually look at things like let's say for example a bedspread you know a blanket that you put on your bed i feel physically and mentally sick at the thought of touching something that's been made out of plastic synthetic materials because i'm very aware at a scientific level the types of microplastics that come off that and end up in the air, in my body. And they take hundreds, if not thousands of years to break down as mm -hmm. opposed to perhaps a secondhand shoe where you've got a natural kind of maybe bacteria, which breaks down in hours, if not days. If yeah. Um, so I guess, again, you know, I think it's your frame of reference. Like yeah. I, I'm aware, super aware of the type of toxic chemicals that get put on a lot of the stuff that we buy and consume now. Um, whether it's food or whether it's clothing or whatever, you know, most of these things these days are made in, in developing challenged countries where these factory owners go and just put these chemicals in there and they don't give any education around how to use them safely and, and why they're even putting them on. Most things that get put on clothing that, that bring water repellents can give, well, do mm. give cancer. So I don't know. I just I don't find the idea of of natural secondhand things as as perhaps materially disgusting as perhaps other people do. But um, isn't that interesting though that as a society we are more comfortable with, um, or maybe we don't even think about these synthetic toxins, but an awful lot of people will be like, oh, that's got germs, or that's that's yeah. a bit dirty, or 
yeah, like, I don't know if we've been kind of brainwashed into that or how that's come about, but that's just you saying that I was like, oh my God, like there are so many people I know who wouldn't dream of touching secondhand stuff because they're like, oh, it's a bit stinky or it's a bit dirty or it's a bit, but we'll quite happily go and buy all this like completely, as you say, sort of synthetic stuff that's been sprayed with fire retardants and whatever. And we don't think about that at all. And then when we suddenly ill, we, we're kind of like, oh, why are the cancer rates so high? Why do I have this autoimmune disease? Why is, you know, we're asking all the questions around why or the proliferation of our health is so bad. Mm. But then no one's really looking at these things that we're buying and putting on our bodies and leaving in our homes. And, yeah. um, and as I said before, like this industry is so unregulated and unenforced from that perspective. So anyway, to answer your question. I, <laughs> I can't even remember what my question was. Well done. <laughs> I don't remember what the question was. So our customer service team would like me to answer um, in the way, though, that we do take into account everyone's opinions that aren't perhaps so comfortable with that. So when we bring the shoes back, um, it goes through this process where we found a kind of as environmentally friendly option as possible to disinfect uh, the products before they even start to go on the line to be repaired. Yeah. And then basically they kind of go through and things like insoles, which is where you get the most of kind of sweat when you're running, they're all, re they're all replaced. with. Uh, okay. And then so what not... do you guys do with the insoles, the, the sweaty, cheesy insoles that you've taken out? Yeah. I mean, I eat them. No, I'm <laughs> um, <laughs> it's they're great. in the staff canteen. <laughs> um, no, no, no. So uh, basically it depends what it's made of. Um, if it's a hundred percent synthetic, it will go, um, so our shoes, sorry, let me just qualify. Our shoes are bucketed. So our bucketed, buckets are supernatural, biosynthetic, which is basically made from things like plant-based synthetic materials and recycled. Basically 100% of the material in that shoe has to be from that category, which then enables it to be recycled and, 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 and part of the kind of circular loop we described. Mm -hmm. So if you've got a, a supernatural insole, for example, it can be either composted or broken down mechanically and made into something new that's still natural. Or if you've got a recycled synthetic or a biosynthetic, for example, you'd be looking at uh, a mechanical or a chemical recycling option there. We are partners with an organization called Fashion for Good, um, and they are what you call an incubation hub for innovation. And we're working with them at the moment on the, the most cutting edge solutions for chemical recycling and mechanical recycling basically and they're not really wow. out market yet but we're looking to kind of get them and scale them and so at the very last step where not a lot of it makes it there but let's say for example it's too damaged and it can't actually make a new material um at the moment it goes into equine flooring oh yeah um, but we're actually looking at the moment at some really exciting technology that might be able to make us break down um, the kind of very basic components of the material into carbon blocks, which we could make into a new, a new material. But that's very, very early. Doors. Wow. Yeah. Kind of like um, stem cell technology with people almost. Oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> well into all of that stuff. <laughs> now, I don't know if it's the same with barefoot shoes, but I, I think one of the things people worry about, and I know I hear people talk about it in terms of, you know, kids' shoes and things, is is this idea that the shoe sort of molds to your foot shape and that you'll you'll get somebody else's shoe and it, it will, you know, it will be for their foot rather than your foot. Is that an issue? Um, from what we've had so far, I don't think it has been. And it does come back to the point I say around, um, you know, we replace the insoles and all those kinds of things that might be the most victims of the of the footprint as it was. Honestly, I'm not entirely sure I can answer that properly. The, the Vivivo project has been this wonderful kind of baby of a lot of different people across Vivo. Mm. Um, honestly, it's been worked on for years, but as I said before, it wasn't really able to come to life until recently. And there's a cross-functional project we call Pirate Team that works on bringing this thing to life. And honestly, like they'd be the guys you want to you wanna ask that question to. But I mean, personally... I think one of the beauties of barefoot shoes, if you've never really got into it before, is that your feet start to spread out. So I, I almost feel like having a little bit more of movement and, and flexibility that's come through wear would almost be an advantage with a barefoot shoe, honestly. Cool. So if I've got a pair of um, Vivo shoes and I love them, but they're a bit 
um, worn out or they've got, you know, they need a bit of stitching done. Can I send them to you guys and you'll repair them and give me the same pair back? In theory, yes, but not yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> so we're working on this as part of phase two. That should come towards the end of the year. It's obviously been a little bit difficult now with COVID because of all the kind of shipping and logistics issues um, with getting those things sent. Yeah. So yeah, towards the end of the year, that is going to be there as a, as an option. So this is phase one, you said. So, so people have a, a pair of Vivo shoes that are knackered or they, for whatever reason, they don't want anymore. They send them to you and you work your magic on them. And then they're listed on another website of the Vivo website. Is that right? Yeah, so right now the, the products that are going through um, the system are either customer returns that we already had yeah. um, or like basically sendbacks where we've sent them out to someone who's selling them in Canada or something and, and they didn't, you know, that was out of season. Or oh, okay. Um, so the base, we're kind of going through um, an inventory of products that we already had what would ordinarily have happened to them? Because we, we hear about these big brands, you know, like burning stock that comes back because it, it devalues the, I don't really understand it, but do you know, like that the, there's vast amounts of stuff just being burnt because they, they don't want it on the market or whatever. Like what would you guys have ordinarily done with that kind of stuff? Bevo Barefoot specifically in the past has done a lot of initiatives to divert or repurpose secondhand stock or um, unsold stock to communities in need. Yeah. Well, we used to have an organization as part of Vivo called Soul of Africa, where we work with lots of different social projects on the ground there, basically kind of in exchange for footwear, we, we kind of also give support financially or, or whatever to kind of help these projects. We do that actually around the world. So in the past, we've definitely found ways to repurpose them. We also um, donated actually a fair bit during COVID to people that needed them mm. um, in, in the health services. There's lots of ways that our, sh our shoes have got out to the world before, but you're absolutely right. This industry is very guilty of burning things. And as I mentioned at the start of this podcast, I used to work for two brands that definitely were two of the biggest culprits of that. Mm. And, and that's public knowledge. So I'm not going to get in trouble for saying no. that. Um, is that ha having heard that that's what you did do with those shoes like that sounds like a really good solution and that's helping lots of people who might not otherwise have access to shoes like this is almost sort of unintended consequence that like keeping the shoes in in intended use for longer is almost sounds a little bit like maybe we're depriving these people who need shoes of them yeah I mean it's a really really complicated topic um, sorry <laughs> no, it's fine it's just I'm not a huge, I don't want to say I'm the expert in this topic, but as I mentioned earlier, I work for two brands. So I work for Burberry, which is a luxury brand, and I work for Primark, which is a fast fashion brand. Now at Burberry, I felt empathetic to why they had to burn products. They had a lot of issues around brand, brand integrity that meant that they may not have survived even as a business during the period where they'd check that comes with Burberry was just being copyrighted, you know, around the world. It was mm. just being popped off left, right and center. And then they pour a lot of time and effort into this wonderful kind of artisan way of making uh, trench coats or handbags or whatever. And then it's a very, very high value product. I don't, I'm not saying I totally agree with this by the way, but then what would happen is if they don't sell through that product, what do they do with it? Because if you go and you give that, to secondhand communities, you completely undermine the value of the original. Right, yeah, yeah, yeah. But there's a huge commercial thing there where the opportunities to do things that somehow for, for people outside, on, perhaps on the outside seem really simple, they're not that simple. They're not, it's really complicated. And then you look at the Primark example where the product is essentially cheap and cheerful. It, you know, a lot of the time it probably will fall apart after a few wears. We get in trouble for saying that one. <laughs> not always the case. Um, but basically you've got then this issue of, is it ethically right to send hordes of this product out to developing communities and say, here, take our old shit, you know, mm. is that ethically right to do that? And actually you've got these massive problems in countries like Ethiopia where they literally are like, like, come on, we don't need any more of your stuff. And there are these massive stockpiles of, you know, secondhand or even, you know, most situations, brand new stuff that goes out there that just goes into heaps of land, you know, landfill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's not always the case when I'm just saying like there's lots of different variations of how this can be done well or not done well on that spectrum of, well, it's as simple as keeping that thing in life, you know? Mm, yeah. So at the moment, the, um, the shoes that are going on the MeVivo website are, as you say, they're kind of returns and, and things that you've had in-house. Are you hopefully getting get to a point where people can send back their things that they no longer want or, as you said, their things for repair? Is that, that part of the plan? Yes, absolutely. So towards the end of, of this year. Basically. Cool. Yeah. Exciting. And are you doing this for the kids stuff as well? Because I would imagine like my, my sister-in-law, we, we met up with them um, recently, obviously having not seen them for a while. And she was one of those unlucky people who bought her kids um, new shoes in February, new school shoes in February. And then obviously like that, you know, so I think kids shoes probably have maybe have an even faster turnover than adult shoes. Is, is that something you're going to do for your kids range as well? Yes, absolutely. So kids is run as slightly separate, I would say more radical way than the core Vivo Barefoot business. The lady who runs kids is a lady called Bayana and she is just this fierce, wonderful, you know, inspiring woman that, that keeps pushing the boundary of even Vivo, who's pushing the boundary of the industry. Mm. And when I first came in the door, she was like, we need to do this Revivo thing. Like we have to get it running it's going to be amazing. It's the solution. And, and I was honestly like hand on heart, a bit dismissive because I thought, well, what's the point of just coming up with this thing to kind of clear up our own rubbish? Mm-hmm. I couldn't understand how that was going to change the world. And I honestly have been so not involved in Revivo kind of <laughs> the way through. It has been a group of other passionate people inside the business because sustainability has got to a point now where everyone is their own kind of warrior in Vivo. And, and they ran it and they, and they drove it. And it's been much more of a bigger deal than I honestly thought it was going to be, um, which I'm really proud of. And I'm, I'm so glad to have been proven wrong. And, and you're absolutely right because Bayama's turned around now and, and this thing for her is, is going to pave the way to, you know, much bigger and better things that help that, that transition with kids where they're growing so quickly and they need the stuff and, and they've got concerned parents that really care about these things and they want to see uh, solutions to that, right? And it's hard, especially with things like shoes, like they're already an expensive for, for kids, like I think proportionally you know, like if you're going and getting a, a decent set of kids school shoes, you're looking at like 40, 45 quid, which is, you know, a lot of money when they need shoes and they need trainers and they need this and they need that. And then obviously ethical brands cost more. And hopefully we understand that's because we're paying for the true cost of the of the thing rather than this, you know, the, the, the cost of that being for the planet or for people or whatever. But, you know, when you're looking at uh, it's, it's August and it's prime shoe buying season, it's, it's really difficult as a, even as a, you know, a parent who tries very hard to, to live by my values and things to think, okay, so am I going to go for this 45 quid pair of shoes or can I stump up the, I, I, I can't even, I can't, remember off the top of my head what your kids shoes are they may even be fairly similar price wise but it's difficult isn't it like when you know it's something they're going to grow out of quite quickly when you know it's something they're going to get nailed like I would imagine as a brand that's quite a difficult one to grapple with yeah I mean not being a mother myself I don't think I can fully empathize with how (laughs) difficult that is but but you know I I certainly hear what you're saying and um I do think that something that Bayama who who is on our on our board um, of our company is driving really, really, really strongly. And I mean, it makes a ton of sense even from the perspective of when you transition into barefoot footwear, you actually outgrow your shoes pretty quickly anyway. Because oh, really? Your, your feet spread out. Um, if you truly adopt it properly and you, and you do get into it, you know, your feet get become, for, I grew a size and a half. So no way. Um, environmentally, it was a disaster for me because <laughs> every single shoe that I had accumulated through my years no longer fit <laughs> me including my wonderful, beautiful high heels I bought for my wedding, which just, I got to my wedding day and last year in September and I couldn't wear them, which was hilarious, but very annoying. Please tell um, me you went down the aisle in barefoot shoes. I went down <laughs> and then ended up spending the rest of the day barefoot. So yeah. uh, that was uh, definitely on brand. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah no, I, I, totally, I totally hear you. And I think so to, to kind of answer the question about what's next, um, the subscription model where you can, buy, resell, buy the next size up, resell, buy the next ah. size up, 
that is the next step for us um, naturally. I don't think we're particularly revolutionary there. There are other brands doing that. We are the world's first kind of e-commerce platform for refurbished footwear. Mm-hmm. A lot of people are doing it, but kind of not in the same way as us. And, and we're, we're really proud of that. But then the next step kind of for us looking beyond that is actually finding ways to uh, 3D print in, in wonderful kind of natural materials, 3D print footwear that is 100% tailored to your shape of your foot and, and to be able to kind of have that in its own circular loop where you're kind of coming in and bringing it back in and, and getting the next size up and, and changing and, and moving with your body. Oh my God, that's... <laughs> Two to three years plan for us, basically. I'm already struggling with, you know, like how do I measure the kids' feet without being able to take them to a to a shoe shop and um, like so. Uh, yeah, that's that's bonkers. 3D printing to people's yeah, mind blown. <laughs> it's again like something I've, uh, I've I've kind of thought about internally because you you I guess by proxy when you go into 3D you delete all of the supply chain issues we spoke about earlier, right? Mm. At the same time, you don't then have a hand in fixing those in, on a global scale. Yeah. So I think that the plan for us is always to stay in what we call fast and slow. So we're going to have the option of, you know, for the more high tech interested people, the 3D printed, fully customized bed. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's in this totally circular loop. At the same time, we're going to keep the kind of supernatural, you know, wonderful artisan, a very kind of human involved community involved product in our line for sure so we're about to drop a a, a product um which is in collaboration with Woolmark, which is this beautiful kind of sustainable wool very flexible super comfortable i've been wearing them now for about six months hiking shoe which wow. is just a dream to wear and a really wonderful story um then we're going to be moving into things like mycelium which is um mushrooms for those yeah. who are familiar with mycelium as, as feedstock and, and we're also starting to play in things like kelp um, yes, and, and even using carbon dioxide as a feedstock. So actually truly wow. going where you're regenerating and you're regenerating the world as, as a kind of consequence of the footwear as well. God, it must be such an exciting place to work, to be in the middle of all that kind of innovation. And as you say, having worked for these big brands where it feels like you're just almost sort of banging your head against a brick wall and you can't get things to change and then to 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 be somewhere where you're almost running to keep up maybe like it's really exciting don't get me wrong I still get to do some really boring stuff <laughs> there's, there's a lot of spreadsheets reporting I was gonna say yeah. <laughs> there's lots of data and lots of spreadsheets but um no it's a it's an absolute wonderful I'm in every single sense of the word empowered to to kind of really be the kind of life-saving warrior that I've, I've always wanted to be and um, I am. I myself sit on the board of Vivo Barefoot, and I, I don't know many brands that have a pure play sustainability advocate, you know, change maker, crazy lady sitting at the top of their yeah. Their so um, it's pretty cool, and I, I think that's what makes it so deeply upsetting when sometimes you jump on, you know, Instagram, for example, when you've done these amazing things, and the comments are just so, so small-minded and right. so of of really like what. That feeling, the feeling that you can hear in my voice, right? Like, I wish that we could bring more people into that community and understand how they can, you know, be empowered and be part of that journey too, you know? Yeah, definitely. And I, as, as we said right at the beginning, I think shoes is something that it, it feels a little bit like where, I guess, uh, fashion must have been, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago in that, in that you might have been aware of these issues, but it felt very, very hard to, to find an alternative that was you know kind of readily available and it feels like shoes are kind of you know they're one of my frustrations in that I you know I'm like oh especially like I've just said with shoes for the kids they need football boots and they need school shoes and they need these boots and those trainers and it's really hard to to find the things easily that fit with my values and I and I hope that you know I, I think as you've said probably on your website somewhere, you know, you guys want to kind of be the, the model that other people can come and to follow and to prove that it can be done. And um, the easier we make it, the more accessible we make it for people. Um, I think hopefully the, the quicker these things will catch on as well. I do hope so. And I think the important thing to, to add to that also is doing it in, you know, what we're calling a kind of radically transparent way. Mm. 
I think that there's so many brands that are just convincing everyone that they've got all the problems solved. And yes. One positive sustainability story out of, you know, a plethora of negative impacts that that, that product has um, or the business has on the world. And they go, look at us, you know, we're so good, blah, 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 buy this, you know, fix the world's problems. Mm. But I think like everything about the way we've set up what we do at Vivo is being willing to talk about the tough stuff right alongside the great stuff. And I think the stuff that you know you're not doing right as well. When I talk to people, if they've got their own, you know, little micro business and stuff, a lot of them will say like, I don't want to say on my website that, that we're a green business or an eco business or an ethical business, because then I'll get people saying, well, if you are, then you're not doing that and you should be doing that and you should be doing that. And actually I, I kind of am a really firm believer in that, you know, as long as you can be transparent and you can say, look guys, we know this isn't right. This isn't where we want to be. But at the moment, because of X, Y, and Z, it's, you know, it's something that we're working on. And, and for me, that says far more than someone who just doesn't even mention it because they're hoping no one will ask. I completely agree. But the unfortunate thing is that, again, like, there's no regulation around this. Yes. The way that a company reports to the outside world is completely and utterly ungoverned. In this oh, world. really? So even things like, you, you know, you legally, as per the Corporations Act, have to put a kind of end of year report out saying how your company performs in that year, right? And mm -hmm. right now the whole system is built around pure play, what money do you make and what money do you spend? Yeah. But there are companies pioneering what they call integrated reporting, which is basically exactly what you just said then. Let's talk about all the stuff we do as a business and talk about how we do it well or how we don't do it well, what the challenges are, etc. But there's no, there's no regulation around that. The, the, the law is not moving in that direction. No one is really interested in, in kind of qualifying what it means to be sustainable or, right. or vegan or whatever. You know, there's just such an absolute cowboy field of, of terms. that, and, and if you can't do that, if you can't define that, then how does the law around, you know, the Corporations Act is so old. It's like literally living in the past. <laughs> and, then, and then as a general consumer, you kind of say, well, business, you should be doing this ethically, but they don't legally have to do it. So yeah. you're still the majority of companies not, you know, choosing not to do these things, right? Yeah. And, and, and as you say, and as consumers, it then becomes really difficult to kind of to see through that greenwashing and to know who you can trust and who you can't. And there, and I think that really does us a disservice because then people feel like it's too hard. It's too hard to, to see through the bullshit and to know what's true. So I just not going to bother. Totally. Yeah. And that's not helped by the fact that the whole concept of marketing and communication to consumers is based off making things as simple as possible. <laughs> yes. I guess that kind of dumbing down and not trusting that customers can be trusted with a, with a certain level of, or can understand a certain level of information. Exactly. Exactly. But that's what podcasts are for, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully. <laughs> cool. So where can people come and find out more about Barefoot Shoes? How can they um, have a look at what you've got on Revivo at the moment? All those kinds of things. Yeah, so the Revivo project or, or, or part of the business um, has its own website. So it's just Revivo, R-E-V-I-V-O.com. Uh, and then uh, the best place to kind of jump on and see what Vivo's up to is Instagram. And also we have our own podcast, which is called Sustain This. Um, you can jump on Apple or Spotify and uh, basically just kind of talking to a lot of the people that we spend our day to day with and, and, and talking about how we need to, to change, basically. Cool. Um, that sounds fabulous. I'm going to go and check that out. <laughs> Brilliant. Thank you so much. And um, I'm aware we've kind of rabbited on for ages. So thank you so much for all your time. And um, yeah, absolutely fascinating. Like I said, I could talk to you for hours, I think. <laughs> well, I'll have to ask you the questions next time. <laughs> oh, that'd be amazing. <laughs> <laughs>
do let me know what that is. I love to hear about the changes that people are making, big or small, every single one counts. If you've enjoyed the show, and I hope you have, do hop over to iTunes to leave a comment or a review, and then the bots at iTunes will cotton on to just how awesome it is, and it will show up in more people's feeds. Or at least I think that's how it works. Thanks so much for listening. I will catch you next time.